God, any confusion or frustration, maybe any past beliefs that maybe just don't even align with your word, God, we just ask that you would just reorient our hearts around the truth that Jesus, simply you died and rose again and we too will rise. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We thank you for the promise of your return. God, we look to you. We thank you and just want to praise you now in your name. Amen. A major theme in the New Testament is the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. That actually uh, 23 out of 27 books of the New Testament, the coming, the second coming of Jesus is mentioned. That essentially one out of 30 verses in the New Testament references in some way the second coming of Jesus. Listen, Jesus is coming back. And I'm hoping this is where you get some amens. Because this is a truth that we believe in throughout church history. Jesus is coming back. Now, when I say that, for some of you, that excites you. For some of you, that terrifies you. Now, and I don't know why. I'm just growing up in the church, for me, just, I, I grew up in the church uh, in Southern California, Costa Mesa, California. This truth, the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, used to terrify me and freak me out. I mean, it did some terrible things. I remember I, one time, and this is just so you can a little know me. Like in seventh grade, we had a teacher in like 1999, all right, about to the year 2000. So like, I don't even know why I'm giving you homework. Jesus is coming back this year anyways. I'm like, what the heck? Like people would claim and say things. I'm like, that's not, I'm like, I'm like they're like, yeah, I don't even know why we're doing this. Why do we have school right now? Like teachers were saying this. This is not okay. Um, but this is just some more insight. You're like, oh, now I know why you are the way you are. But there is some like brokenness, I think, when it came to, to this. There's some beauty when it comes to this. But it's funny because I do think about growing up around this. I don't know how many times I thought I missed the second coming or the rapture of Jesus. I don't know how many times I thought that. I like wake up in the morning, like everyone's like stuff is there. And I'm like, where's my family? I'm like, great. I've been left behind. I mean, growing up in the 90s with the left behind series was very dangerous. All right. It was not healthy, not good. But I'd come home from Basel practice, I'd drive home. Like everyone's stuff was there. The cars are there, TV's on. And I'm like, again, I missed it. I probably thought that hundreds of times. And you know you have too, don't lie. Everyone knows they have at one point. Here's what I'm trying to get at. I think for so long I had a broken perspective of this. I think I had a misguided perspective of this. I think that as I began to grow in my faith, the, the rapture or the coming, the second coming of Jesus, and we'll try to break down those different terms in a minute, just stay with me. But I think what ha- began to happen in my heart was not this fear, but Jesus come. As you kind of get older, as you kind of grow through it, you realize like, wait, I'm kind of actually sick and tired of, of what this world has to offer. I'm tired of seeing people who I love dearly walk away from Jesus. I'm tired of paying taxes. <laughs> I'm tired of life stuff. Like just, some of it you're like, oh. you know, I think the more you live, there's a side of it where you're like, Jesus, just come. Now, when you're young, maybe there's that mindset of it. And I remember thinking this, like, Jesus, just let me get married first. Let me travel the world first. Let me do this. And I think what the Lord does is he kind of puts in your heart. He goes, over time, there is nothing greater than being with the one who made you and loves you and redeemed you and bought you at a price. And it does take a while for your heart maybe to get there. Maybe when you hear the second coming of Jesus or the return of Jesus, you hear that phrase, you're like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. There's something about as you just sit in the gospel, you go, you know what? I realize the gospel is not that I get to go to heaven one day. The gospel, I get to be with God one day. The gospel is that what was lost in the garden, this fellowship and intimacy with God is restored. I get to actually be with him and know him be loved by him, be fully known by him. I get to see him like face to face. You see, the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus is not there to create fear, but to create this longing in our heart of, yes, even so, Lord, come quickly. You know, I think what the realization for me, and I think the fear early on, and maybe just even throughout the years, and maybe you're in this place right now, maybe that thought is, well, am I living the life I ought to be living? Like, am I living in a way that is honoring the Lord? Like, am I making the most of the days? 
like Jesus talked about his coming in Luke 19, and he said this phrase. He says, do business until I come. Occupy or do business till I come. And maybe you're like, that's not me. Maybe that the coming of Jesus, there's fear around it, there's shame around it, there's questions around it. And again, I don't know how to put it other than I think the longer you walk with Jesus, you're like, I realize this life will satisfy me less and less, and Jesus will satisfy me and meet my greatest needs more and more, and nothing will bring me greater joy. Because in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you realize over time, you go, yes, Lord, come. You know, three times in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am coming again. I'm coming back. I'm coming again. And I love it. Three times Jesus says that, and the way the book ends is John just saying, even so, Lord, come quickly. Jesus is like, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And John's like, even so, speed it up. And I love that. It's like, Lord, I love that you're coming soon. We might hear this and go, okay, but it's been 2,000 years since the book of Revelation was even written. Jesus, where are you? What's going on? And so I want to look at this phrase in, verse, in this, this teaching or this text in verse 13 through 18 because Paul is not trying to intimidate or overwhelm, or he's not trying to just throw in some end times theology and just walk away. He's trying to deal with a pastoral issue. It's like some of you are grieving around those who've died. You have questions and confusion around the resurrection and the return of our Savior Jesus. So I want to be really clear because, again, not every question is answered in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Not every question is answered here. But Paul is just trying to get to more of an issue happening within the church. There's, there's a sense of grief without hope. And Paul's like, no, no, wait, that's not how we grieve. Let me encourage you how we grieve. So as we walk through this text today, I'm probably going to spend more time on, on my last point, on number three. But here's what I want you to see. There's three things we're going to walk through. We're going to see a fundamental question that Paul answers. We're going to see a foundational truth. And we're going to see a future hope. So as we walk through this text, um, here's kind of how we're going to break it down, and we'll probably spend more time on number one, number three, but let's just, let's just break this down. Let's just walk through verse 13 through 18. So in verse 13, here's the first point. We're going to see a fundamental question that Paul is basically trying to answer. Let's read verse 13. It kind of preps us for the rest. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, about those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Basically, the premise of the text, Paul is trying to get to a fundamental question. That question simply being, what happens to Christians who die? There is some uncertainty and speculation around this, this question. You see, there was a belief and mindset that Jesus would come back in their generation. Paul, Paul even begins to kind of say this. He says, we who are alive and remain. People, begin, people pick up on this and go, Paul probably thought in his generation that Jesus would return. This idea that there's this expectancy of the imminent return of Jesus. But there's confusion. But wait, what happens if you die before Jesus comes? Or, we'll see in 2 Thessalonians, maybe some thought they even missed the coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord is happening. And we'll talk about that more probably next week as we get into verse, chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. But I want to bring, there's this confusion and frustration. What happens to those who die who are in Christ? Paul simply says this. Again, let's look at verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. One translation says, we don't want you to be ignorant about this. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are dead. You see, the issue was that basically there's either bad just theology. There's actually people sowing kind of like seeds or deception. We see that in 2 Thessalonians, like bad doctrine coming in from false teachers. And he goes, we don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about this. Basically, a lot of their grief came from either maybe a lack of theology, bad theology. I'm not trying to say that uh, all issues are around maybe uh, grief, all issues around death are a bad theology. But I do say th good theology matters. 
like what God says about his return matters. The scriptures matter. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about these things. Now, here's what he's really saying about those who are falling asleep. So often the Bible will use uh, sleep as a euphemism for death. The idea is, and this is why the Bible does this so often, is you will eventually wake up. When it comes to sleep, you don't stay asleep forever. You eventually wake up. Now, the Bible tries to use this phrase about death being compared to sleep, because why? You eventually get up. But some people throughout church history have taken that and said, so do we just basically sleep until Jesus returns? Maybe you've heard that doctrine, the doctrine or teaching, like soul sleep. So people who've died, are they just sleeping until the return of Jesus? That's not Paul's intent here. Paul's intent is trying to show them this idea that sleep, usually, usually after sleep, you wake up. And the idea that one day we'll wake up. We know that our soul, our spirit, our eternal consciousness goes on to live forever. That it doesn't just sleep until the resurrection of Jesus. That Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I want you to stay with me. As soon as you pass away, right now, you believe in Jesus Christ. We believe, just scripturally speaking, as soon as you pass away, your, your eternal conscience goes to be with God. There's questions around that. Is that like your spirit with God? Do you have a temporary body in heaven? Like there's some questions around that, but we know that you go on to live immediately in the presence of God. This is so important. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, to die, that's gain. Paul's like, for me to live is Christ, to death, it's gain. It's not, I sleep. It's gain. I'm with Christ. When Jesus was speaking to the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not in a couple thousand years, you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The, de- the idea that I want to leave you with is, know this, as soon as a believer in Jesus passes away, they go into the presence of God. Now, there is a day they're waiting for, the resurrection of our bodies, where our bodies are reunited with our spirit. And it's our body, yes, but a glorified version of our body. It's like when Jesus rose again, it's his body, but a glorified version of his body. And, and so we're waiting for that resurrection day, the resurrection of our bodies with our spirit. And this is what we call maybe at the rapture, at the second coming of Jesus. And again, I'll try to, to clarify and define those terms in a second. But I want you guys just to stay with me that Paul is just trying to say, hey, here's what happens when you die. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you, and here's the, the key phrase to me. Look again. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible has such a complete picture of grief. Meaning, the Bible says you can have hopeful grieving. You can grieve with hope. I really want us to hear this for a little bit. Paul's like, we don't grieve the way the rest of the world grieves. We can actually grieve and we grieve with hope. Let me say this, because I think a lot of us need to hear this. I think I need to hear this. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to truly grieve. And just to embrace the loss that maybe you've experienced. I think sometimes in the church what can happen is when someone passes away, there's almost like this Victorian sort of mindset of like just, you know, bite down your lip. It's going to be okay. Don't you, they're in heaven. You, don't you cry. There's sometimes, maybe it's like an unspoken thing, but some families like at funerals, like they're like, we're not going to cry. Like, what is that? It's okay. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to suffer loss. I love this because Jesus expressed this so well to us. Jesus loses one of, one of his dear friends, Lazarus. When he arrives, what does Jesus do? He just weeps. He doesn't go to Mary and Martha. And he's like, why are you weeping? What do you, you know he's going to be in heaven with me. What do you, why are you weeping? Jesus doesn't do that. He just weeps with them. He weeps. And actually, the language you see, like, he, he is like a shaking. Like, it's like a, he was weeping bitterly. It's like a heavy weep, a heavy cry. I'm very thankful we, we serve a God who understands that death, and he knows this, and we know this, death is not natural. Death is not normal. 
there should be something that frustrates us about death. When you think about death, it should not be like, well, that's just a part of life, man. It's just death. You know the circle of life. There's only like this Lion King mentality that's just so weird. It's like, oh, you know, you just go into the ground, you feed the animals, right? And like, no, death is not natural. There's almost like this stoic philosopher kind of view of death. I think some people do try to explain it away like that. Like, hey, death is natural. It's just part of life. You just, you know, you are and you are not. And that's it. That's it. But yet in our heart of hearts, we know like, no, no, death is not final. Like, I think we know there's more to life than that. It's not just, just that's it. Just, that's, we're done. You see, again, the scriptures, and I think about this. I love this with the book of Job, actually. Job loses everything. He loses his children, his home, his finances. He loses everything. And it says he weeps bitterly. He covers himself in dust and ashes. And it says in all of these things, he did not sin. Job weeps. Job is broken. Job is grieving. He's not sinning. I want you to know, again, when it's okay to grieve. Actually, God joins us in our grief. There's a God who says, I know what it's like to grieve. I know what it's like to suffer loss. And there's also not this other extreme where just people try to say, well, hey, you know what? Just who cares? I mean, that's just it. That's all there is to life. You know, the Bible has such a beautiful understanding of death. It says death is abnormal. Death is not natural. Death is our enemy. Death is a monstrosity. Death is not God's will or a plan or his intent for us, but that's what happens because of sin. You see, what Jesus does, he comes on the scene and says, you know what? I'm going to conquer the thing that was not meant to be. That through death, Jesus defeated death. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? There's almost this mocking side what Paul is doing. He's like mocking or belittling death. He's almost like going like, hey, death, where's your sting, man? Like Jesus removed the sting from death. See, death doesn't do what it used to do. You see, because Jesus conquered death through death. You see, I love what one author, his name is George Herbert, he said this about death. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has just made him a gardener. I love that. Death used to be an executioner. You know what the gospel does? The gospel takes death like a seed, plants in the ground, and up springs new life. She's just, death is just a gardener now. Plants in the ground, up comes new life. You know, this is so key and so fundamental to our beliefs as followers of Jesus. You're saying, no, no, there's not this soul sleep. We immediately go into the presence of God. But one day, just like Jesus' body, just like Jesus rose again, we too will rise. That God will reunite our eternal consciousness, our spirit. He'll re- reunite that with our body. We'll live with him forevermore. And there is that resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the living. That, that one day our body will be reunited. And this is really what Paul's getting at. He's like, you haven't missed it. Know that you immediately go into the presence of God. He goes, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed around these things. And listen, he goes, and you don't have to grieve the way the world grieves. This is so important. I've done, a, I feel like, a couple funerals somewhat recently. I did two funerals for people younger than me, which is so bizarre. I've been to funerals where there was no hope at it, where people knew that this person did not live a good life, and yet they get up there and they have to, you know, for a while to talk about them, maybe the good things, maybe kind of ignore the bad things. Those are painful funerals to be part of, where it's like everyone knows, like, man, their life was just so selfish, so greedy, so about themselves, so sinful, so just all about me. And then you've been, I've been at memorials and funerals where you're like, this person lived for Jesus, for others. They gave themselves away. They, we all know where this person is because of the, their belief in Jesus, because of the saving work of Jesus on the cross. And it is just so different. We don't grieve the way the world grieves. We grieve with hope. Listen, I do want to say this. It is okay to grieve. We need to grieve. Absolutely. But it's so beautiful when you're around believers who can grieve with hope. And I'm very thankful the Bible's not like, hey, stop that. Stop that grieving. You know you're going to heaven. No, it's like, go ahead. Grieve. God's like, I'll grieve with you. But there's a side of this grief, but we have this hopeful grieving. We grieve with hope. 
This is so key. This is so foundational. You know, I remember um, our, our, my pastor back home, Chuck Smith, used to always say this, and they wrote this in the newspaper uh, when he died. They put his quote there, and I just want to read it with you. He says, someday you're going to read in the paper, Chuck Smith died. Don't you believe them? Chuck Smith moved on. I love that. We, we grieve, but with hope. That we realize that death is not natural. Don't let people tell you just a part of life. We go, no, the death is an enemy. Death is an enemy that we all know in our heart of hearts was not meant to be, and ultimately Jesus did defeat death. And we know that one day, we'll see death completely defeated, but he did defeat death. And so Paul's whole point is, we see this question that he, this like, what happens? Paul's trying to get to this, this question, and Paul, just trying to prove that there is a resurrection, points back to Jesus' resurrection. And again, we're going to spend less time on this, but let's look at number two. It's a foundational truth, a foundational truth. Here, read verse 14. Here's what Paul says. Paul says in verse 14, He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I'll explain more verse 15 on on my third point, but I want you to see what Paul is saying. Paul is brilliant what he does. Paul is saying, if you struggle with the return of Jesus, or you struggle with the idea of the resurrection of believers, that one day those who died will rise again. If you struggle with that, he's like, can I remind you of Jesus who rose again? Paul is saying, we will rise. Here's our proof. Jesus rose. Paul's saying, you and I don't view death the way the world views death, because Jesus rose, we too will rise. I mean, this is a simple argument, but it's a profound argument. I actually love the phrase, and I want to put up here. Listen to how he says this. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Let's just start there. I mean, this is the gospel. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Some of you need to know, first of all, the first part, Jesus died, and Jesus died for you. And Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, so you and I can be reconciled with God, so we can know God, we can love God, have relationship with God, so we can find why we're here on earth. Jesus died. And this is such a beautiful truth. He had to die. I was having this conversation with my son this week, and it's so fun. It's like at bedtime where he kind of like is a little bit more calm, and we can kind of have conversations, and then it turns into argument, you know? That's just kind of how it goes. Uh, but he's like, we're talking about Jesus dying. He goes, Jesus had to die. I'm like, yes, Jesus had to die. I'm like, also, he didn't have to die. He willingly died. In some ways, and this is weird with a six-year-old, so forgive me, I'm terrible, I don't know. I'm like, and I'm like, yes, you're absolutely right. He had to die. But he didn't have to die, I'm like, Micah, in the sense that he was forced to die. He willingly gave up his life. And that's when it turned dark. He's like, no, he had to die. I'm like, yes, I know. He did have to die so we could live, yes. But also Jesus willingly gave his life for us. He didn't have to in the sense that he was forced. He just, he, he had to for us to be redeemed. And we're going back and forth anyways. Spare you from that, those details. But I love this. Jesus had to die, but he also willingly died. And and there's so much truth in this. There's so much power in this. You know, there's something about the cross, right, that we should not just think about it on Good Friday once a year. You think about all that God accomplished for us on the cross. You think about what God did on the cross, how, how the story of the Old Testament is constantly pointing to a tree. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. There's this idea that, of just that tree, this coming tree, and Jesus bore our sins, as Peter would say, on the tree. That Jesus fulfilled the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God. He filled the righteous requirement that was against us. As Colossians says, that he paid for my sins and your sins on the cross, but we also believe he rose again. He doesn't just stay there. He had to rise again. One author says, the death of Christ purchased our redemption, but the resurrection of Christ proves our redemption. Yes, he purchased it, but the proof, the receipt, is the, is the resurrection. 
The meal's been paid for. How do we know? We have the receipt of the resurrection. If you struggle with this, I want to encourage you, if you still struggle with the resurrection of Jesus, I don't believe that. I don't believe the resurrection. You know, I try to spend like a lot of time on this on our Easter message, and uh, I'd say go back and listen. I never like to say that, but just go back and listen to that. I would love for you to kind of get more of like an argument for the resurrection of Jesus. It's unbelievable. I mean, you look at the verifiable facts of the resurrection of Jesus, the historical truth. Paul is not pointing to some wishful thinking. Paul said, you want to know how you will die and rise again? Look, Jesus died and rose again. And Paul's point to the resurrection of Jesus to prove our resurrection. Paul did this also in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the first fruits of the resurrection. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I'll just read this to you. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. He's like, Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. This was pointing back to a Jewish festival and, and holiday and just a, an understanding of first fruits, where when Israel would begin to see some of the first fruits or the wheat is beginning to grow, kind of the cream of the crop, the first, the first part of it, they would take it to the temple, they'd offer it as a wave offering to God, they'd celebrate God, there's much more to come. Thank you for the first fruits. You know, we have a mango tree, and it's fun. I've got to see this the last couple of years. Like, we see the first fruits in the tree. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like two or three mangoes. And then like a month later, there's like much more mangoes. Like, the first fruits, right? When the first fruits arrive, you know there's more to come. His point is, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. You saw Jesus rose again, there's more to come. Jesus rose again, we too will rise. The first fruits of the resurrection. Paul's argument is like, look, we know Jesus died and rose again, and we know that we too will die and rise again. And he points to the resurrection of Jesus for you and for me. And then he talks about how in verse 15, the dead in Christ will rise first. And he explains this more in detail in verse 16. And this kind of brings us to our third point when I want to spend more time on. The, the number three is this. It's a future hope. Paul is saying there will be a return of Jesus. It will bring the resurrection of the believers. There will be a reunion among the believers. And this is a future hope. Let's read verse 16 and 17 and break it down. Verse 16, a future hope. Here's what he goes on to say. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Stop there. Paul is saying there will be a generation, we who are alive and remain, will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. Now, maybe you've seen this. This is what people call the rapture, many people call. This idea that there will be a time where we're caught up. There will be a generation that will be living and will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, let me break this down uh, for you. Because there's a lot of different views when it comes to the rapture, when it comes to the coming of Jesus and us meeting the Lord in the air. Now, before I kind of break that down, you're like, Josiah, I don't see the word rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's just not. We've got to acknowledge that. Now, the idea of being caught up, it is this Greek word, harpazo. And it comes from this, rat, this Latin word, it's debated, but uh, rapimir or rapturo. But the idea is, like, in the Latin, this is the, the word where we get the word rapture from. And it has a few different meanings. So stay with me. This phrase caught up, you can circle it. Greek word harpazo. In Latin, it kind of gives us the word raptus or uh, raptos, different debates around that, whatever. But the idea is where we get the word rapture. Now you're like, what is the rapture? Again, I think this is, we'll probably talk about this more next week because I feel like in our generation, there's been a lot of mocking a lot of like Christian just weird speculation around this. Maybe this word has kind of turned you off in some ways. There will be a day. I really don't care what you call it. There will be a day. People who are living will be snatched, caught up, meet the Lord in the air. Paul's really clear on that. 
Now, what does this look like? Is there a seven-year tribulation? Is there no tribulation and Jesus comes and returns? What does this look like? You know, this word rapture and this word caught up, uh, it actually has a few different meanings, and I feel like these meanings are helpful. And I just want to read these to you. Uh, one guy, uh, one author who talks about just basically the, the understanding of Greek words says, hey, this word harpazo can be used in several different ways, and it means several different things depending on the context. And here's how he puts it. And we'll put the first few up here. It can mean to catch away speedily, to seize by force, to claim for one's own self, to move to a new place, to rescue from danger. Let's just actually look at this and say thank you for Jesus for a second. Stay with me. Let's break this down. He says, you'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It can mean to catch away speedily. This is the word used when Philip was preaching the gospel to Ethiopian eunuch, and they just taken away. He was taken away speedily. It's fast. It's quick. It happened really fast. Another way this is used, or the idea of it, was to seize by force. When you look at the Septuagint and the Greek version and more of the understanding around it, if you remember, Lot was in his city of Sodom, and the angels are saying, judgment is coming. Lot doesn't want to leave essentially. He wants to leave, doesn't want to leave. It's like, you know, and the angels basically take him by force and his family by force. And the idea was like, we're, you know, judgment's coming, we're going to remove you from this. It's almost like if a bus was coming to hit you and I push you out of the way or pull you out of the way, it's like, I'm going to rescue you from just oncoming wrath. And it just means to seize by force. Uh, another way this has been used or another implication of this is to claim for one own self. This idea of harpazo, I'm claiming you to myself. Almost just speaking of like wedding, ceremony vows kind of a thing. Hey, you're mine. I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. You're, you're mine. I'm, I'm, I'm claiming you. You're my bride. You're my husband. To claim for one's own self. Uh, this also just simply means, or to be caught up, means to move to a new place. It reminds us of Jesus' words in John 14. We'll just read at the end, but he said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. You're moving to a new place. And lastly, it can mean to just rescue from danger. The idea of this idea of being caught up, it means danger or wrath is coming, and I'm trying to rescue from it, the wrath of God. Now, it's debated whether that wrath is the wrath of hell or maybe just the wrath of the lamb that Revelation 6 talks about, but that Jesus will rescue us from the wrath to come. Here's what I want to get to. Because when it comes to uh, the second coming of Jesus, when it comes to the rapture of the church, I want to say this is not something we divide over. There are many people who I love and respect and have different views than I hold to. This is one of those things I've been, I feel like I grew up uh, in a, a church that believed in something called the pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture of the church. Pre-trib meaning Jesus comes before the seven-year tribulation. Pre-millennial means he comes again, the second coming, before the thousand-year reign. There are people who I love and admire who don't believe in that, and they simply just believe in the coming of Jesus and his kingdom being on earth as it is in heaven. And they might go by as like all millennialists or preterists. I'm not going to get too much caught up in some of those details. Here's what I want to get to. And this is to me the beauty of this. I believe my brothers and sisters who have different views on this, essentially throughout church history, all, all of us have had an imminent return of Christ view. Meaning, regardless of if you believe there's seven years or you believe there's a thousand year reign or you believe that's just a figure of language, whatever it is you might believe, we still believe in the same thing, which is the imminent return of Christ. This is what I want to get to because I feel like I got caught up in sometimes so many of the details and still miss the big picture. Jesus speaks of his coming as being imminent. Imminent meaning at any time, at any moment. Imminent meaning I'm not looking for the Antichrist, I'm looking for the Christ. Imminent meaning I'm just looking for Jesus. That there's nothing that needs to happen prophetically before Jesus comes. That Jesus can't come at any moment. Paul used that language. We who are alive and remain. We who are alive and are left. 
Paul seeming to believe, obviously even in his moment, his lifetime, that Jesus could come back. The idea is we believe in the imminent return of Christ. So people have a different view or when this plays out, how this plays out. I say, you're welcome. Uh, I would just ask that you have the imminent return of Christ. I would just ask that you believe that. You say, no, Jesus can come back at any moment. You know, Jesus gave a beautiful parable in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about some of the things that will happen around his coming. And he gives a, a, a parable. He talks about the evil servant and the faithful servant. Long story short, he says, hey, listen, there's a master. He goes away to far country. He has some servants. There's a faithful servant who says my master can basically come back at any moment in time. And he was a wise. He was a good servant. He served faithfully even when the master was gone. He was, but then there was an evil servant. The evil servant began to say in his heart simply this phrase, my master delays his coming. The evil servant was defined by this view or belief that my master delays his coming. He's not coming back now. He's not coming back with me here. He goes, this servant had this mindset and it led to bad decisions, bad lifestyle, basically. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Jesus, I believe, gave this parable to basically communicate to you and I, have a view of his return being imminent. Don't say in your heart, my master delays is coming. I don't say in your heart, Jesus is not coming back. There's something about every generation having this hopeful longing for the return of Jesus that I believe God uses to, one, purify his people, to work within his people, but something beautiful to say, don't you want to be with the one you love? It would be weird if you're like, my wife goes on a business trip or goes on some sort of trip with the girls or ladies, whatever, and I'm like, oh, I hope she stays longer. Like, no, right? That's not good. You're like, when is she coming back, right? You don't think that. You think, I want them to be, well, I need, like, help, help. Like, please come back. I remember, whenever, whenever she leaves, I'm like, when you come home, please come home. I'm like, help me. Um, but there's something about that. There, you kind of go, Jesus, I, come. It's not, my master delayed, he's not coming. I don't want him to come. There's just something that God is doing within the heart of people. This is what we call the blessed hope. The coming of Jesus, some believe it's in two parts, where we meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation. Some believe it's just the coming of Jesus and all happens at one event. We meet the Lord in the air and he comes back down and establishes his kingdom. Either way, there's this idea of the, the coming, the imminent return of Jesus. And Paul uses this phrase in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. He says, we're looking for a blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you hear how he phrases that? This is the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's like, he's God. He's Savior. Our blessed hope is his return, his glorious appearing. This is what we are looking for. This is what we should long for. Do you believe that the return of Jesus is imminent? Do you believe that Jesus can come at any point? Uh, there was a pastor, I think his name is, oh, I forget it now, but he basically asked people that. Like, do you believe Jesus is coming back? And they're like, no, I don't. He's like, well, maybe he will now. <laughs> the idea is like, God wants to produce within our hearts just this idea that Jesus come, you come and you can come. I, I don't want to say in my heart, my master delays his coming. No, Lord, come. There's this beautiful longing for the return and coming of Jesus. G. Campbell Morgan says, I'm not looking for the grave, I'm looking for him. And that's it. I'm not looking for the grave. I'm looking for him. Obviously, I would love it for Jesus to come back in our lifetime. I would love to be the generation that we who are alive and are left will be caught up. You know, I would love that. That'd be amazing. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. I want to be like the Enoch's and Elijah's. Elijah was caught up. Enoch was caught up. I want to be that generation. Let's be the Elijah and Enoch generation. I would love that. It'd be absolutely amazing. It might be. I don't know. My, my whole thing is this. We're supposed to live with this imminent return of Christ. This is the mindset or the heart that God is producing and wants to produce within us. We who are alive and remain will be caught up. Paul probably had this mindset, obviously, according to his language. We who are left. You see, this is the mindset and hope that we are to have today. And here's the thing. This is supposed to be 
something I, I said it earlier, but instantaneous, very quick. There is a generation that will be living when Jesus returns. Now, Paul said it in this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Okay, so if you're still struggling with this, he's saying this, we shall not all die. We shall not all sleep. The idea is there's a generation where we should all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be caught up. Again, the points that Paul is trying to make is there's going to be a generation that sees the coming of Jesus. will be caught up. It'll be quick. It'll be instantaneous. It'll be the Lord in the air. Now, whatever movies you've seen, maybe you need to get that out of your mind or heart. Whatever books you read that are outside the Bible, maybe you just need to get that out of your mind or heart a little bit. But there should be this hopeful expectation of the coming of Jesus. And say, I don't know if it'll play out how I think it will, but I'm looking and longing for the imminent return of my Savior, Jesus. I want him to come. It might not be how I thought. It might not be what we grew up with, but I'm looking for the imminent return of Christ. I believe this is what God is trying to produce within us. He actually uses some details. I don't want to ignore those. He gives some details around Jesus coming. Again, we'll throw the verse up here. It's verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. A few kind of descriptive or imagery kind of base uh, details where he says it with a cry of command, with the trumpet of God. The idea really is more referring back to the nation of Israel's history where the trumpet would sound and the people would gather. The trumpet would go off and it's like either one, we're going into battle or two, we're going to celebrate a festival. And you could say both apply here. Like we're going into battle and we're going to celebrate a festival. God has come. The trumpet of God is here. This voice that is, is shouted. Actually, Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this. Listen, for an hour is coming when all of those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There's coming a day when those who are dead will hear the same things Lazarus heard, which is Lazarus arise. I love that Jesus just said simply Lazarus arise and Lazarus came out of the tomb. If Jesus just said arise, everyone would have came out. Jesus had to go, yeah, Lazarus, you specifically. So for us, there will be a day, that voice, that, that command of arise. And he says the dead in Christ will rise first. Just referring to the, really the fact that those who pass away first, their bodies will be reunited with the Lord probably momentarily before those who are still alive and remain. So this re, the reunited of their eternal conscience with their body. He was by no means perceived those who are asleep, those who already died. It, it, Paul's point in all of this is just saying you don't have to grieve about believers who have died the same way the world grieves. You grieve with hope. Paul's point is more pastoral, I believe, than is doctrinal. Paul said, I know there's a lot of grief around this. I want to give you some hope that Jesus will come, that the dead in Christ will rise, that we who are alive and remain will be called to meet the Lord and we will always be with the Lord. I would rather emphasize that than some of the other details. We will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. The Lord himself. Some of these phrases I just want to meditate on this week. The Lord himself will descend. That in Zechariah we're told that all the eyes shall look upon him whom they pierced. Referring to his second coming. They'll look upon him whom they pierced and they'll mourn. That they'll look upon Jesus whom they pierced. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, with a voice, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive and will be caught up, meet the Lord in the air. He goes, comfort one another with these words. This should bring comfort to you. This is less about some doctrinal, like, let's get the map out and put the timeline out. This is not about that as much as, wow, Jesus is coming again. And every generation should be looking and longing and waiting and ready for the coming of Jesus. We should occupy till he comes, do business till he comes. That we should be the faithful servant who says, my master can come at any point. Not the evil servant who says in his heart, my master delays his coming. This is really the point that he's trying to get at. And listen, my hope in today, my desire for us is I would love for there to be a church, like a group of believers who truly do believe in the imminent return of Christ, who live with that. I mean, 1 John talks a lot about that. 1 John 2, 28, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, there's a lot of this reference to like, this does, this has a purifying effect in us. 
This has a longing for us to not want to walk in shame or live. Like, we want to purify ourselves even as he is pure because we look forward to the day we'll see him face to face. There's something so beautiful about this. I would love to see a group of people who says, my Jesus can come at any moment, at any time. I'm not going to get a whiteboard out and start putting a timeline together. I'm going to say I have this view of the imminent return of Christ. That even so, Lord, come quickly. I'm coming soon. Even so, come quickly. See, he says, what does he say here? Comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Can I say, this is so different than the culture they were in. The culture they're in is death was it. Death was that. A couple of their philosophers, here's what they said about death. He says, once a man dies, there's no resurrection. Another author says, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. There's found on a Roman tomb, this phrase, it says, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. This was the thinking of their day. This is how they viewed death. No hope. I was not. I am. I died. I care not. That's it. Death is death. It's natural. No, death is not natural. Death is unnatural. And we know that in our heart of hearts. And Jesus came to die to destroy death, to remove the sting and fear of death. Because though we die, we shall live. Jesus said that day to Lazarus, his friends and family around. He goes, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live. Do you believe this? I love that Jesus asked that question. Do you believe this? Church, do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection of life. That though you die, if you believe in him, you shall live. Do you believe this? Yes. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Comfort one another with these words. The second coming of Jesus, this great generation where they're caught up, this harpazo, <laughs> this is not to put fear in your hearts. This is not to put shame. This is to say, yes, Lord, I long for the day. Come. I'm going to occupy till you come. I'm going to do business till you come. I'm going to be about your work till you come. Come. Even so, Lord, you're coming quickly. Come sooner than that. Come quickly, Lord. I pray. I really do pray it's our generation. I think it would be amazing. I would love that. I would love that. Like right now. Please. Like I love that. I don't know. But I'm going to live that way. I'm going to have the mindset of the imminent return of Christ. Even so, Lord, come quickly. I believe that you died and rose again. And because I believe in you, I too will die and rise again. Because Jesus lives, we, we live. You know, Jesus in John 14, this is hours before he's taken to be crucified. This is right before Passover. Or this is during that whole Passover time. Jesus in John 14 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I go to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again, receive you to myself. Let not your heart be troubled. The, the coming of Jesus was to deal with that issue. You have a troubled heart, Jesus is coming. You're grieved without hope, there's resurrection day. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. Amen? Listen, I want to invite you into this. You can have the same hope by putting your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. You turn to Jesus. You believe in Jesus. What he says, if you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life, if you believe in me, though you die one day, you're going to live. Because I rise again, you too will rise again. I would say this. I beg you, put your faith in Jesus. If you've not yet received Jesus, receive the free gift of salvation found in Jesus. Death is not natural. Don't let anyone lie to you and say death is natural. No, death is unnatural. Death is an enemy. And Christ came to defeat death. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? See, we now can mock it. 
Because death used to look scary, now it looks like a gardener to me. Just buries things in the ground and up comes new life. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does. Amen? Can we just praise Jesus for a little bit? Can we thank Jesus? Can we worship Jesus? Can we respond to this message of Jesus? Say, thank you, Jesus, for your death and resurrection. Thank you that I, too, will die and rise again. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll live. Maybe we'll just be alive and really caught up. Great. I pray that we're that generation. But I know that your death and resurrection will bring forth my resurrection. Thank you for that truth, Jesus. Amen? Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the promise that there is a generation that will be living that will meet you, Lord, in the air. The idea of clouds is your presence, that God will be with you in your presence that will be with you forever, that will be in your presence where there is fullness of joy. God, I just ask that people who maybe just believe this idea that death is natural, that you just are not, you just cease to exist, God, that no, you would get within their soul, within their very bones, that they would know that there's more to life in this. That God, you've made them just for eternity. And God, I pray then ask that you just move in their heart, that by your spirit and by your grace, you would open their eyes, that you would by grace grant them repentance, that Jesus, there would be this realization that you are Lord, that you are the resurrection life. And Jesus, we just want to praise you now. We want to sing to you now. We want to celebrate you now. That Jesus, though we die, we shall live because Jesus, you rose again. Our resurrection, our hope is based off your resurrection. And so we just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the promise that you are coming quickly. And we just ask, even so, Lord, come quickly. In your name, Jesus, amen.